So it's all here. The story of our time with the bar call. That was President Lyndon Baines Johnson upon the dedication of his presidential library in 1971. Since then, the library has played host to the biggest names and best minds of our day who have helped to tell the story of our times through candid, revealing conversations with the Barkoff. This podcast delivers them straight to you. Welcome to With the Barkoff. I'm Mark Updegrove. Julian Castro rose from a low-income household in his native San Antonio, Texas, to become the city's mayor at the age of 34 and would go on to serve as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under Barack Obama, becoming President Obama's youngest cabinet secretary. A one-time college summer intern in the Bill Clinton White House, he ran for the presidency himself in 2020. His observations on the campaign trail and as a cabinet secretary led to his new podcast, Our America with Julian Castro, in which he explores the disparity in the American experience and the steps we might take toward a healthier, more just and fair America. Julian Castro, welcome. We're delighted to have you with us today. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you for the invitation to be here. Well, we you first came to, to national prominence, uh, Julian, as, as the keynote speaker uh, at the Democratic National Convention in 2012. And that is a position that is traditionally reserved for a rising star in the party. Such Texans as Ann Richards and, and Barbara Jordan have occupied that spot in the past and a little known uh, senatorial a candidate named Barack Obama uh, was the keynote speaker. Well, talk about that experience and what that was like for you. Uh, it was nerve wracking. <laughs> it was uh, a whirlwind <laughs> experience. I was mayor at the time and I had been mayor for about three years when I had that opportunity to deliver the keynote speech. Uh, so it's not like I wasn't in public life and hadn't had any experience in front of crowds, but that was clearly the biggest crowd that I had been in front of up to then and all of the preparation that goes into a production like that is something to behold uh you know from from working with speechwriters to write the speech to they had a guy there at the dnc who had been working with speakers uh to perfect their speeches and the way they delivered them for like 24 years i don't know how many how many conventions that is six of them or something uh and not to mention the anxiety of knowing that you're going to step out there and not only are there 20,000 people in the arena, but 25 million people watching. Uh, so it's nerve wracking, but also, uh, you know, like anything else, right? Folks who play sports, other moments, maybe you're stepping into a big meeting. Usually after the first couple of minutes, uh, the butterflies are gone and you're able to, to do what you practiced. You know, uh, one of my favorite memories of uh, talking to former President Obama was toward the end of the administration, we had a reception that the cabinet was invited to at the White House. And we exchanged notes on his keynote speech and you know my keynote speech. He said that when he looked back at the tape of his 04 speech, that he could tell that in the first 20 seconds that he was very nervous. And I told him <laughs> that 30 seconds into my speech, I felt like I was gonna pass out in front of 4.1 million people. <laughs> and if you watch the tape, there is like a slight half moment there where I can tell that that's going on. Fortunately, my knees did not buckle and you know I stayed at it and 
it came off fine, but it was, it was a great experience. It was also meaningful because I was the first Latino to get to do it at the Democratic Party convention. There had been a Republican speaker, actually, I think in the 80s. Um, and, and I knew that there would be a lot of folks out there watching that might be able to relate and might be able to say, hey, I can do that. And, uh, and hopefully it would inspire some folks. When you're giving a speech like that, that is the, where the stakes are so high, is there a time, you, you mentioned that your, your knees stopped shaking, but is there a time when you think to yourself, you know what, I got this. Uh, did you feel that in the speech in a certain oh, for point? Sure. Like, yeah, after the first couple of minutes, yeah. And by the end of it, uh, I knew that I had hit all of my marks in the speech and gotten the crowd reaction. The important part of that speech where I needed the crowd was when I think there was a riff where, I'm say, where I was saying, you know, and Mitt Romney says no, and, and you know, then the crowd got into it. That's what they were supposed to do. Uh, if they hadn't done that, I think I would have fallen flat. <laughs> but when that went fine, the choreography of it went well. Uh, and then toward the end, my daughter helped out, but Karina helped out by tossing her hair and everybody laughed at that. And, and the ending of it went well. So yeah, I mean, it, it's those moments, sometimes they're big, sometimes they're small, where you know that you, you feel like you've done a good job and you're able to bask in that right after it. I walked off the stage and um, you know how on your phone, uh, are these iPhones that has the banner messages that flip over and it shows you the number of texts or tweets or whatever. I think it said, I had like 789 uh, messages, different types of messages. Uh, so it was a great night. That, that would be a wonderful night. That was, of course, uh, a convention where we, we nominated uh, a, 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 a candidate for president. You ran for the presidency mm -hmm. last year. What did you most learn from that experience? Um, I guess the biggest takeaway politically was that the person who wins the nomination and becomes the president is the person who most meets that moment. You have to have a lot of talent. You have to have the requisite experience uh, you know, to garner support, but you also have to fit a moment. And I think that Joe Biden most fit the moment. What people, you know, a lot of people wanted was somebody who they believed had rock solid experience, who was the adult in the room, uh, who, was going to try and bring us back to some sense of normalcy. Now, you know, we want normal to be better than it was before, but you know what I mean, some sense of normalcy after the turbulence of four years of Trump. He represented that. And um, I think to his credit, with all of his experience and the vision that he laid out and the steadiness of it all, his campaign faced a lot of obstacles, but they were able to overcome that, uh, like uh, previous candidates that have been victorious. Uh, so that was number one. I guess if I had a second one, it would be whether people were liberal or conservative or no matter how happy or how angry they are, the, the thing that really uh, got their attention when I was on the campaign trail were solutions. Mm. People wanted to know, well, okay, well, look, you know, what do you mean? How are you, how are you proposing to actually do this? And I think in there, in that, there really is more than a kernel of hope that in all of the polarization we're seeing, the ideological battles, that at heart, people that don't live and die by politics every day are still concerned first and foremost about, okay, look, um, you know, how are you gonna make this better? 
that was comforting for me because of what it said about the people, what it says about the promise of trying to come together as a country. And because it was familiar because I had started out in local government and that's what people are concerned about in local government. You know, are you going to make sure that these potholes are fixed or that if I need an ambulance, they're going to get there, uh, you know, in a timely way and so forth. I want to talk about some of those solutions in a moment. Um, but, but that experience that you had on the campaign trail and your experience as the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development for President Obama um, brought you perspective that led to a podcast that you've just launched called Our America with Julian Castro. Talk about that podcast, Julian, and what you hope to achieve from it. I'm excited about it. Um, you know, we wanted to put a spotlight on uh, people who are struggling out there in our country. A lot of the folks that I met along the way over the course of the campaign. And then before that, when I was HUD secretary, I traveled to a hundred different communities in 39 states. And uh, a good example of this is an episode that we did about uh, mobile home community residents in Waukee, Iowa. Uh, this kind of thing is happening all over the place in Iowa and other mobile home communities. Their mobile home community got bought out by a private equity group. And as soon as this group did that, they tried to jack up the rent by 69%. Uh, and so this was about a 92-year-old woman named Arleta, Arletta Swain uh, and another resident who tried to push back, including by going to the Iowa legislature to try and get legislation that would prevent that kind of thing in the future. Uh, they, they weren't successful at getting that, but through that action, they were successful at getting this company to temper their rent increases. Um, so those types of things of telling these stories of what's happening to folks and how the American experience differs from person to person and place to place and including hopefully a focus on solutions. When you gave that keynote speech in 2012, people were captured by your story. Would a young Latino man growing up in San Antonio, Texas, have a better chance to succeed than you and your brother Joaquin, or would the deck today, or or would the deck be further stacked against him? And I think on balance that we've made more progress. Um, I mean, the the numbers bear that out right now. You see more people graduating from high school. You see more people going to college, whether it's community college or university. So on balance, I think that there's more opportunity than there used to be, partly because for the Latino community, for other communities, you were coming from a relatively low place. Mm. So you're still moving up. Um, at the same time, we do see in our country that income inequality has, has uh, increased, that you, know, you can't afford on the minimum wage or just above it, what you used to be able to afford in life. So quality of life, uh, economic well-being, is, is something that is harder to achieve, good quality of life, good economic well-being. But uh, the, the markers of that, um, like getting a college education um, or a good technical education, more people are able to access that now who are Latino or Latina than my generation and certainly than my mother's generation and my grandmother's generation before. Do you see in, in I don't want to go back to the whole notion of the American dream, but, but, but specifically relating to education, Wayne, 
given the coronavirus and how we're communicating right now, um, virtually, does that open up opportunities for more people to get education or is it more restrictive in your view? I think it's, it's both, both, right? Because we're still dealing with a digital divide in a lot of places um, where there are people that don't have access to broadband at home, or if they do, uh, you know, there's an inertia because they're not familiar with it. They're not masters of it. They're not taking advantage of everything that it has to offer. There's less analysis of that, I think, than of the absolute digital divide. But I, I feel in a very real way that is impacting whether this whole world uh, of what's online is available to people. Um, right. At the same time, my daughter today with the apps that are out there, the different online courses, uh, you know, the variety of it and how quickly you can get knowledge off of the internet in other ways. I mean, you can't compare that to when I was growing up or you were growing up, the, the, access, the availability and accessibility of knowledge if you have the tools and you know how to use it. So in that sense, it opens up a whole new world of possibilities to people. Uh, when I was at HUD, one of the things I'm most proud of is we did something called Connect Home, which was a public-private partnership between housing authorities, HUD, and uh, internet service providers to provide either free or very low-cost broadband at home for people living in public housing so that we could close that digital divide. But, but the important part here is that one element of that was also nonprofits that were doing work to help train or educate families on how to best make use of that tool. That's an important ingredient that we can't forget. So, so going back to the, the American dream for a moment, it, on balance for most Americans, is the American dream a possibility or an illusion? I think today that it's become a lot harder to achieve that American dream and it's out of reach of more people than it used to be, um, but that it's still attainable for a large portion of Americans. Um, you know, I think we've gone backward in many ways, but I would not say, you know, I'm not somebody who says that the American dream is dead. I wouldn't say that it's, you know, you have examples all the time of people that go and get their college education or, or go into the military, do what they want to do and are able to live a good life. The other part of this, and I think you know, it, it's broader, is I think we're redefining what the American dream is and what it means. Hmm. Originally, you know, it's thought of as a house and a car. Yeah, but what about happiness? Uh, what about the time that you get to spend with your family? This whole year that we've been in this pandemic uh, experience, I think a lot of people would say amidst the half a million deaths, which are tragic and should not have happened, um, and everything else that's come with it, the pain and misery of this recession that we went through, the silver lining for a lot of families has been that they've had a lot more, that they had a lot more time together to actually spend together. And as we think about the American dream, I think the 21st notion, 21st century notion of that American dream needs to be broader, more nuanced, but also fundamentally reflective of who we fully are as human beings. And we're not just mm. about, you know, economics and property. You're also about many other things. So, so Hugh had a, 
a magic wand that you could wave over our country and change one thing to level the playing field or help to level the playing field, what would it be? Do you mean something that's a realistic policy or not? Yeah, it's a realistic policy. Yeah, you, you, are, you are a sovereign leader um, and, uh, and you, can, you, have, you have one thing that you can do to help impact change on an immediate term basis, something that's feasible, realistic. But what, 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 would it, what would it be? It's a close call between ensuring that everybody could get a college, good college education and actually raising the wages of people, you know, the minimum wage way beyond what it is now, beyond $15 an hour, you know, to, to 22 yeah. or 23. Because the research is, is also clear that when you do that, um, one of the biggest determinants of a child's educational success is, is the education, but also the income level of their parents. And so as you, rise, you raise that income level and well-being of the parents, there's, there's an attendant increase in success academically. And you know by that, in most other ways in the future for kids. So one of those two things, if I had to do one thing immediately. Uh, it, it, just as we live in a, a disparate America, as you point out on your wonderful podcast, which I've had an opportunity to listen to and I very much enjoy, we also live in a divided America. Are the two interrelated? Is our disparity uh, and our, our, our disparities and their divisions um, related? Oh yeah, I think so, of course. I, a lot of the frustration that people feel um, uh, has led to a dismissing of people that are different from them uh, or you know, throwing their hands up and not participating in our democracy and, and withdrawing from it. So I do think that those two are interrelated. I mean, they're, they're distinct, but they're also interrelated. Um, uh, yeah, I think they are. Well, what, what can Joe Biden, you, you mentioned earlier that you saw in the, uh, in the presidential campaign that, that Joe Biden was the, the man for the moment, uh, the adult in the room, as you mentioned. What can he do to bring this country together when we seem almost chronically divided? He can do a lot. Like immediately, he's already changed the tone in Washington. Um, there's always partisanship, but you don't have mean tweets going out at two in the morning, uh, driving the entire news cycle, having Americans focus on the division the way that they were with the previous president, where you know that's dominating the news and everybody, everybody is focused on how divisive things are and that ups the temperature. Being truthful, we saw January 6th was the result of a big lie, of misinformation, of an individual and more than one putting their own political self-interest above the interests of our democracy. Joe Biden has immediately uh, you know, changed the way that the president is doing business in that regard. He's not telling a big lie. You know, he, he's looking out for the best interests of the country. Every politician, no matter who it is, right, is going to act in some self-interest or they probably wouldn't be there in the Oval Office. Um, <laughs> however, I mean, there's a sea change. Another part of it is accountability. How do you garner the trust, the buy-in 
of people over the long term, right? You go to what makes institutions stronger, more accountability. When Merrick Garland yesterday in his confirmation hearing uh, to become the attorney general says, I, I'm not going to work. I don't see myself as working for the president of the United States. I work for the people of the United States. Yeah, it's small, but it's an important commitment. And it represents a sea change from how uh, Attorney General Barr, in the eyes of many, behaved, at where he seemed to see himself as counsel to the president only. So those things, and then I think we need to make institutional changes. I hope that Joe Biden will lead on things like uh, redistricting reform. We already have 15 states that have independent or bipartisan style redistricting. We, I hope that every state one day will have that kind of redistricting so the politicians don't get to choose their people. The people really do choose their public servants. Uh, and the districts are drawn so that you give politicians some incentive to have to understand and communicate and, and work with the other side I say that as the brother of uh, and resident of the 20th Congressional District that is overwhelmingly Democratic. But hey, look, I think the more that these districts have to play to, to both sides and not just one a little bit more, probably the more likely you're going to get folks who will work across the aisle. And then finally, I hope that uh, Biden will lead on trying to end Citizens United and get big money out of politics as much as possible so that you have public servants that are really trying to serve the people first instead of thinking about, you know, how's this going to play with the people that donate a lot? Hoyan, can we have meaningful immigration reform in this country? I believe that we can. I believe we have a moment right now because of the cruelty uh, and the extremism, in my view, of the Trump administration we have a moment where Joe Biden has more latitude to do something big on immigration. And I say that because uh, on the left, there's a more of a fervor for him to do something. So you have your base that is, is supporting that, pushing for it. Uh, in addition to that, we know 10 years ago, you know, a president that I, that I loved, that I served, Barack Obama, got into hot water with, uh, you know, a lot of the Latino community because he had promised to do immigration uh, in his first year or 100 days, one of those two, but did not. And that allowed Republicans to, to beat Democrats over the head year after year, saying you broke a promise, they don't really care. So Joe Biden would do well to get caught trying, even if he fails. Um, but then secondly, the, the issue on immigration is that there are a lot of Americans that disagree and disagree sharply with expanding immigrant access to citizenship in this country, or, or even a lesser status than that, and want to be punitive, right? So they disagree with it. In fact, you know, they rapidly so. However, there's also a, a dynamic in politics where, where people may disagree with it, but they expect that something is gonna happen. They have mm. already, uh, I think even people who disagree on the right have already baked in the idea that, oh, the Democrats won. Uh, they're going to do their thing on immigration. And that should give you latitude also that that's mm. baked in. The difference between just because there's disagreement, but there's also an expectation. I think Trump was actually very, very uh, astute, very clever at understanding that distinction. And really 
mm. worked people into this sense of, oh, he's going to do what he's going to do, you know, especially the media who came to normalize and accept a lot of what he ended up doing. Um, people expect that something's going to happen on immigration, whether they agree with it or disagree with it. And so all of that is to say that I think there won't be as much of a negative um, redounding to Biden and the Democrats if it happens. That 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 that, that expectation gives you leeway to actually make something yeah. happen. So if President Biden were to call you, Juliana, and get your counsel on immigration, what would you tell him? Say the conventional wisdom is out the window that you have the latitude right now to go big, that it's preferable to go big with a, a major piece of legislation, and they have introduced that, um, than it is to break this up. And I like the elements of what, he, what he's included, focusing on the pathway to citizenship and then these executive orders that have addressed the excesses of the Trump administration. Uh, you know, obviously he and I disagreed on a couple of policy points, but all in all, I mean, they're headed in the right direction on this. And so there's, there's not, much advice on policy right now that I would give. What I would say is just to to stick it through. And this is this is an issue now because of the history of the last decade or so, where in order to do justice for uh, those immigrants, in order to benefit the country, and in order to keep the Democratic coalition together, mm. you need to at least give it your best try. And I think that they can actually prevail. So you're speaking from your hometown of San Antonio right now, where it will be sunny and 80 degrees today, a sharp contrast from last week, where Very it was true. about 10 degrees. And you and your family were without power for 55 hours. So how did we fail uh, in Texas with the massive power outage that we experienced, and how do we prevent it from happening? Yeah. Well, we were without power about 18 hours. My brother was out without power Wait. about 55. Yeah, he, he had it worse. It. Yeah, he got was it. second born, so he's always got it worse than me. <laughs> uh, but your question is, how did we, well, first of all, two days ago, the Public Utility Commission met, and they did something that was very well received and, and should be by Texans, which is they said to energy companies, stop the bills. You cannot charge people for the cost of what just happened, you know, these exorbitant bills, and you can't cut people off for non-payment. Now, that's a stopgap measure that's temporary while they try and figure it out. It's also a damning admission that the market that you put together in this state was a total failure over the last week. Right. To have to do something like that, that kind of emergency unprecedented measure and blow up the idea of a market in the first place. Why did it fail? It failed because Texas deregulated its energy market in 1999. Not only did we deregulate, we're the furthest out there when it comes to deregulation of any of these states or combination of states. Uh, we don't have a capacity market, for instance. That means that's worked out too. We don't have the reserve capacity uh, in situations like this, to be able to continue to provide power when it gets that cold and when some facilities go offline. Uh, we didn't put the right incentives or requirements in place for the weatherization of facilities, whether those facilities were thermal, whether natural gas, um, whether they're uh, wind or, or other types of energy production facilities. So what we're left with was, uh, I, I've said, a system that 
did not break down. This is a system that is broken down by design, failure by design. And coming out of this, we're going to need massive reform to the PUC and I believe to the broader energy market here in Texas. Talk about how the outage affected, disproportionately affected the underserved in our state. Just like a lot of things in life, including COVID-19, the most vulnerable in our society were impacted the most. I mean, um, what I saw uh, in the news here locally in San Antonio were uh, people who were homeless, who already are living on the edge, already exposed to bad conditions, who had it worse because now they didn't have access to clean water. Uh, now they couldn't just go into a grocery store or a convenience store to get something that they, to eat or to drink because those things were closed. Uh, now shelter space was full. And so they're left out literally even more in the cold. Um, and the humanitarian efforts, whether it's food banks, uh, uh, church uh, nonprofits are taken up serving everybody else that doesn't normally have these problems, you know? And, and so the, the least among us uh, often get hurt the most. Coming out of COVID-19 nationally and coming out of this experience and COVID-19 in Texas, it's time that we make a commitment to making sure that the most vulnerable people who have often stepped up as frontline workers in meatpacking plants, grocery store workers, in fields, uh, doing hard work so that all of us can enjoy our quality of life. We need to make sure that they are invested in, that they're able to reach the American dream, have a shot at it. You know, things like raising the minimum wage, making sure that everybody has health insurance. I was glad to see um, Representative Lyle Larson uh, State Representative Lal Larson, you know, uh, proposed Medicaid expansion on the Republican side and have another go at that. It's long overdue in this state. Those are some of the lessons that I hope that we take and act on after all this. You mentioned your younger twin brother, Joaquin, uh, who recently argued the impeachment case against former President Donald Trump as one of the House floor managers. Almost predictably, the trial did not lead to the conviction of President Trump due to the, to the deep partisanship that we see in America today. Do you think it was wise to go forward with the impeachment proceedings knowing that a conviction was unlikely and that it could possibly lead to greater divisions in our nation? I believe that it was wise because what happened on January 6th was uh, such an affront to our democracy and to the notion of America, of the peaceful transition of power that is supposed to be guaranteed, that is you know, a, a, a um, base of this system that, of governance that we have, you couldn't let that go without accountability. And part of the accountability was the individual who most stirred up, most incited people to actually take action. And that was Donald Trump. And so I believe that they made the right decision to move forward with impeachment and then uh, try and convict him in the Senate. You're right. I mean, didn't expect it to, to get enough votes. It requires two thirds, 67. They got 57 votes. They got more votes for conviction, I think, than anybody 
uh, ever has before. And it was a more bipartisan uh, vote for conviction than we've ever seen before. Not to mention, of course, that Donald Trump, this was his second co-round, which was unprecedented. So I think they made the right decision. Um, I read a poll or a series of polls yesterday that suggested a large majority of Republicans still believe that somehow the election was stolen from Donald Trump. And while I think you would have to look into the particulars of that, because frankly, if you had done that poll about Democrats four years ago after everything that happened and the suspicions about Russia, who, you know, I'd love to look those up and that may have been a high number too. And you know, people didn't think of themselves as unreasonable for thinking that who are Democrats. Um, but I do think that uh, putting a stamp of disapproval through the impeachment and conviction process makes sense and will help future generations sort this out um, in a good way and hopefully discourage future megalomaniacs from taking the same path. Is there a lesson we should derive from the Trump presidency? One principal lesson that we should take away from the last four years? Uh, there are a lot of them. Uh, we need civics education mm -hmm. in this country. Mm -hmm. Today, more than ever before, people need to be able to sort out fact from fiction. They need to be able to analyze, understand a lot better. Maybe, I mean, that's an argument for education in general, right? Um, but sure, people's passions uh, often sway how they view information, whether they're willing to believe it. But, but it's also, I think, you know, a base common level of understanding about how our system works and what's possible and what's not and what's realistic and what's not. Um, and the ability to, to filter through all that a lot better in the 21st century with the tools that we have at our disposal and the channels of information and, and misinformation that we have coming at us. Uh, you've recently said that you don't have plans to run for office in 2022, adding, I don't have a target in mind in terms of what I'm going to do to run again. What do you plan to do in the near future? Well, in the near future, uh, I plan to you know, have my organization, People First Future, and so we're going to continue to support uh, good progressive candidates that are running all over Texas and the country. On top of that, I'm uh, doing my podcast, which I've enjoyed a lot. When I went to, to college, I thought I was going to go into broadcast journalism. And so I tell folks, this is about as close as I'm going to get to that. <laughs> uh, I'm also delivering speeches and I'm sitting on some boards. And so for right now, I'm going continue to continue to support great candidates and to use my voice uh, to further that vision that I believe in for our country uh, in any way that I can. And then we'll see what happens. You know, if you asked me, just honestly right now, do you believe that you'll ever run for public office again? I would probably say, yeah, you know, I think at some point I probably will, but I don't know what that's going to be right now. You know, I'm, I'm not uh, looking to run in 2022. Uh, I don't have a office in mind that I'm going to run for yet. So I believe that I will because I have a heart for it and I get excited by the opportunity to make a difference in people's lives through policy and through representing them. But how that, you know, when that is, how that is, I'm not sure yet. 
But we look forward to seeing what your future holds. The podcast is Our America with Julian Castro, and our guest is Secretary Julian Castro. Julian, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. My thanks to Julian Castro, to our sponsors, the Moody Foundation and St. David's Healthcare, and of course, to you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this podcast, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Mark Uptegrove. See you next time.